Father, thank you that no condemnation we dread in Christ, and that in Christ all, all blessings are ours because he is ours and we are his and forever it is so. So God, we come as your people, as the people of your son, and we pray that you would feed us now through your word. God, and again, we bring you the request that Nathan led us in praying, that you would open uh, blind eyes to see uh, the sufficiency and the sweetness of Jesus so that the lost would be saved. God, I also pray you would open the eyes of the hearts of believers to see more, to see more of your wisdom and your will and your beauty. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 505 years ago, tomorrow, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, and that sparked the Protestant Reformation, though he did not so intend at the time. And that's why we celebrate this Sunday each year as Reformation Sunday. Uh, But it could be argued that a much more significant turning point came almost three years later, when Luther stood on trial before the powerful emperor Charles V, and he was being pressured to recant, to take back his writings that criticized the Pope and the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. And Luther said famously, "...unless I'm convinced by the testimony of Scripture..." And clear reason, for I do not trust in the Pope or councils alone. It is well known. They have often erred and contradicted themselves. And so I am bound by the scriptures that I have quoted. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. And then, reportedly, Luther concluded... Here I stand, I can do no other, God help me, amen. And in today's scripture, uh, the next passage in our verse-by-verse study of Acts, we see the Apostle Paul taking a very similar stand. Acts 26, 12 through 23. Acts 26, 12 through 23. And Paul stands on trial before King Herod Agrippa, And he declares more or less a similar sentiment. Here I stand. God helps me. I stand only on what is found in God's word. In verse 6 of chapter 26, Paul said, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God. And in verse 22, he said, To this day I have had the help that comes from God. So I stand here, here I stand, testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. I, I stand only on what is written in Scripture. So Paul takes a stand on the Bible, on the resurrection of Jesus, and he recounts one more time the testimony of his conversion. It's the third time we hear about this in the book of Acts. But this time, the emphasis is not on Paul's conversion per se, but on the commission 
that he received from Christ on that day. So first we will hear the Holy Spirit speak about an appearance of Christ's light. It's the first point, an appearance of Christ's light. In verse 12, sets the stage for when it happened. Look there. Paul testifies, In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. So he made this journey in connection with what he was just talking about. He was a raging enemy of the church. And the chief priests had authorized him to imprison Christians, punish Christians, sometimes even leading to their death. In the words just before verse 12, Paul said, I persecuted them even to foreign cities, and it's for that reason he was going to Damascus. He's going under the authority of the chief priests, he said, with a commission from the chief priests, he said. But this trip is going to be interrupted by a higher authority who gives him a new commission to carry out. Look at verse 13. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And Paul thought this light shining from heaven that eclipsed the light of the sun, it must be a manifestation of the divine presence, a direct encounter with God in His glory, who called to Him, Saul, Saul. And so when Paul addressed the one speaking from heaven, he called him Lord. And he asked, Who are you, Lord? Well, that's something like, isn't it, the moment of Exodus 3 when Moses encountered the the presence of God in a light in the burning bush. And Moses also heard God call his name twice. Moses, Moses, Moses also asked a form of the question, Who are you, Lord? What should I tell the people your name is? God answered Moses from the light, I am who I am, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But amazingly, when Paul calls out to the light of God's glory, Who are you? The answer comes, I am Jesus. That's amazing. It's an astonishing little phrase in the middle of verse 15. And this had to make the blood of Paul's opponents boil. The Lord said, I am Jesus. The light of Christ's presence demonstrated the truth. He was the Lord. Because of the origin of the light shined from heaven. And also the intensity of that light, it it overwhelmed Paul. It knocked him and his travel party to the ground. Previous chapters told us it blinded Paul. This chapter said it was brighter than the sun, and that at midday, verse 13 said, the beginning of verse 13. So, So this light outshined the sun at the time when the sun shines the brightest. 
The Apostle John saw a vision of the risen Christ in glory in Revelation chapter 1. And you remember he, he said that his face was like the sun shining in full strength. You know, this connects to other scriptures that describe the light of God's glory as a light that outshines the sun and so eliminates the need for the sun. Isaiah chapter 60 proclaims the day of final salvation for God's people and it says, Arise, shine, your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise on you. His glory will be seen upon you. And the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Isaiah 60, 1, 2, and 19. And then Isaiah 24, 23 says, When the Lord comes to reign on Mount Zion, the sun will be ashamed, the moon confounded. And Paul saw, surprise, Jesus of Nazareth shining in a way that made the sun ashamed. He is the Lord. And Christian, a day is coming when you will see Jesus the Nazarene shining in a radiant glory that far exceeds what Paul saw on the road to Damascus. And it won't just last for a moment. Revelation 21, 23 says, The new Jerusalem has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And at that time, His people will experience such an enthralling, holy admiration in their Savior that no earthly pleasure could hold a candle to. Uh, in our men's study this week, uh, going through the, the Puritan Thomas Watson's book, A Godly Man's Picture, we read a section titled, A Godly Man Prizes Christ. And Watson wrote, have Christ-admiring thoughts. Oh, let us have endearing thoughts of Christ. Let Him be accounted our chief treasure in delight. This is the reason why millions perish, because they do not prize Christ. And friends, these truths about Jesus, we've already seen from Acts and Isaiah and Revelation, these can be Christ-admiring thoughts for you. These can be endearing thoughts of Christ for you if you'll let them be. If you will recall them and really ponder them and ask the Spirit to open the eyes of your heart to see Christ's glory in them. You know, what, what goes on in your mind all day? Have Christ-admiring thoughts Take your thoughts captive and have endearing thoughts of Jesus. Now sing to yourself, fair is the sunshine, fairer still the moonlight, and all the twinkling starry host, 
Jesus shines brighter. Jesus shines fairer than all the angels heaven can boast. And Paul learned that was true on his journey to Damascus. He also learned, because Christ said so, that Christ's call is irresistible. Jesus said, verse 14, it's hard for you to kick against the goads with a D. When I read this in family worship last night, Timothy thought I said, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. Goads with a D. It's a, it was a sharp stick used to prod an ox or a mule or some other animal, maybe a goat, to drive them in a certain direction. And the animal could kick back against being led that way, but that would hurt. That would be hard because the goads would be used more severely until the beast gave in and went. And so Jesus is calling Paul by his grace for his purposes. And Paul could go the hard way or the easy way, but he was going to go. The sovereign calls of Jesus are ultimately irresistible. There's another Christ-admiring thought for you, for your mental storehouse. He is the king of heaven whose will, gracious will in his people never fails. He, he's on trial. You're saying, in effect, here I stand and I can do no other. No, really. I could do no other. It would have been hard to try and do other, but it wouldn't have worked. Now, one evidence Scripture gives us of someone who truly is God's child is that God does not allow them to forsake him in any in an ultimate sense, that, that in his kind and keeping shepherdly grace, he doesn't let them stray all the way away from him so that they don't come back, but he brings them back in, in loving discipline. He leads and goads and carries. And Jesus makes it hard for his true children to run away. Praise him for that. Jesus is the Lord of irresistible grace and persevering grace. And grace is absolutely the right word to use here. Jesus, in his marvelous light, he didn't say to Paul, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Therefore, rise and receive the retribution you deserve. He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and you will be mine. Verse 16, he says, but rise and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those things in which I will appear to you. So, <laughs> I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But never mind that now. Stand on your feet. I've appeared to you not to punish you, but to appoint you. Right? There's no time or need to try and atone for anything or earn anything. Just get up and follow me. Forget what lies behind. Here's what lies ahead. You will be my witness. The old has passed away, the new has come. This instant, but before you've done anything for me, that's the grace of Jesus. He's, 
He says, don't stay on the ground despairing over past failures or fearing condemnation from me. Accept my grace, stand up, serve me. Uh, Jesus deals so with all sinners who come to him. So graciously. And this experience with Christ's radical grace gave Paul confidence in reaching out to the Gentiles, people who were not in any way seeking the light of Christ, any more than Paul was when he went out on the road to Damascus. As, as Paul quoted from the prophet Isaiah with reference to his ministry to the Gentiles, God said through Isaiah, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. And didn't Paul know it? Christ's appearance to Paul sounds a lot like previous calls of prophets in the Old Testament. When the Lord called the prophet Ezekiel, he appeared in glory, brightness was shining all around. Ezekiel fell on his face, and the Lord said to him also, Stand on your feet. Then in verse 17, Paul heard words that echo the call of the prophet Jeremiah. Look at verse 17. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. That's very similar language to the call of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1, the Lord said to him, I appointed you a prophet and I'm with you to deliver you. They'll fight against you, but I will deliver you. So we see here also, you know, Paul himself could not resist Christ's call on his life. But also, Jesus promised no one else is going to be able to cut short or redirect the the ministry that I have for you either. Not until Christ's earthly purposes for him were through. Again, we can share the same confidence in our Savior Now, the words of Christ at the end of verse 17, I am sending you. Well, that resembles God's call to the prophets, a lot of them, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, others. God told them, I send you. I am sending you. And I think Paul is purposefully trying to recount here on trial details about his conversion that line up with ways that God called the prophets in the Old Testament. So, as if to say... Hey, my ministry stands in continuity with them. I'm with those guys. It bolsters his claim that he's going to make down in verse 22. I'm saying nothing but what Moses and the prophets said would come to pass. I serve the same God they did. The same God who called them called me. And Jesus is that God. Now the next part of the passage transitions, thematically at least, Uh, Here Jesus explains the commission that he was giving to Paul. And and this begins the other main point of today's scripture. We've seen the appearance of Christ's light. Now we hear about the mission of Christ's light. The mission of Christ's light. So Jesus said, to the Gentiles, I send you. Verse 18 explains the purpose of that sending to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place 
among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus was sending Paul on a mission of illumination. He's going to use Paul's witness to grant spiritual sight, which would lead to true repentance, turning, which would result in the reception of complete forgiveness and eternal inclusion in God's holy people and place. The final words of verse 18 make it clear that that progression holds true because the true repentance of turning includes faith in Christ. Now there's a deep connection between the encounter with Christ Paul was having and then the mission from Christ Paul was receiving. Jesus said, I send you to open eyes to a man who was struck blind by what he had just seen. Jesus said, I send you so Gentiles would turn to light as he speaks from glorious light that outshines the sun. Jesus said, I'll send you so they'll turn to God as he is appearing as the very glory of God. And in this passage, the verb to see or words made from it, is used repeatedly in the original language to explain both the experience and the mission of Paul. Now, the English translations uh, rightfully translate using different words to make it more readable, but, but if we tried to bring out these connections, we could translate something like, Paul saw the light. Jesus said, I have been seen by you, You will witness of what you have seen of me and what you will see of me so others will have their eyes open. So others will come to see. I think there's a connection. What Jesus is indicating, he's going to use Paul's witness to, in a sense, bring other sinners into the experience of meeting Jesus that Paul was having on that Damascus Road that, that through Paul's testimony of that fellowship with Jesus, of meeting Jesus, of who Jesus was, that sinners, by believing on that testimony, would meet Jesus just as truly as Paul did on that day and see him as Lord. Now, not meet Christ as dramatically, but just as truly. And, and the book of 1 John starts similarly. The apostles say, we saw him, we touched him, We've seen him, and we proclaim what we have seen and touched to you so that you may have fellowship with us and fellowship with him. We enter into that same kind of true fellowship through their testimony. You have seen Christ's light, Paul. Now go proclaim that light, and I will open the eyes of some who hear to turn to it. And so Gentiles in that way can share in the blessings of of what you, Paul, just experienced, to to see the truth about me and to receive grace, irresistible. Now, the Apostle Paul explained the ministry of uh, gospel proclamation in these terms, very similar, 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul wrote, If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case... The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers 
to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God, who is the image of God. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. And God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's why all Christians can sing about their conversion. Not just Paul was blind and now I see, who experienced that in a more literal way. But we too, through, through his, his gospel witness and, and the witness of the other apostles, come to meet Christ and see the light of his glory with the eyes of our heart just as truly Now, when God opens the eyes of a sinner in this saving sense, they don't just understand the truths about Jesus. It's more than intellectual illumination. You know, if I passed out a quiz about the facts of the gospel, it's not like everyone who made above a 70 would be like, oh, Jesus has opened your eyes. No, the verse said, this is an opening of eyes that causes one to turn. To turn from darkness, from the dominion of Satan, and to go to God and his light. It's a spiritual sight. It doesn't just see, cause you to see the truth about Jesus. It causes you to see the truth about Jesus as irresistibly compelling. And in the light of Christ's glory, you want him as your savior. And in the same light, you see your own sin as abhorrent. And you want him to save you from it. And so they turn, they repent And they put their faith in him. And the end of the verse said, Through this eyes opened, turning, repentant faith, the awakened sinner receives forgiveness and inheritance. It did not say those with open eyes turn to achieve forgiveness and inheritance. It says they turn to God to receive these things. See, faith in Christ doesn't purchase or pay for anything. Faith in Christ receives free gifts, unmerited favor, forgiveness. And, the verse said, an inheritance or a place among those who are sanctified, among those who are set apart for God as His holy people. Now this commission Paul received deeply shaped his ministry. If you read his letters in the New Testament... You'll you'll see the wording and theology of this commission all through it. No place is that more true than Colossians 1, 12 and 14, the passage we confessed earlier together in the service. Sounds so much like the mission Christ gave him. Paul told those Gentile Colossians, I give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints, the sanctified ones, in light... He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so I think if you ask, how should you put the truths of Acts 26, 18 to use in your Christian life, I might suggest that you do it the very same way that Paul did. In Colossians 1, 12 and 14, give thanks. Thank God the Father for your salvation as described in these words about Christ's 
eye-opening mission of light. And thank our Father for the salvation of your brothers and sisters in the same way, in the same theological categories. And if you do that, if your heart really um, goes out to these words in Scripture with understanding and in faith, and you purpose God to give thanks on the basis of that, I think you'll find that your prayers of thanksgiving will be filled with a sincerity and depth. You will not find these prayers of thanksgiving to be cold or rote. And if you have a true, heart-deep, theologically dense thankfulness in your heart, That can motivate all kinds of worship and obedience. And that can be a repellent against all kinds of sin and temptation. Now these truths should be a great encouragement to your evangelism as well. And toward a particularly prayerful kind of evangelism. If you remember, God opens eyes. And if you remember, God must open eyes. For a sinner to turn to the light. Now, verse 19, Paul transitions from retelling how he received the commission to how he carried it out. Look at verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, so I did not kick against the goads. Verse 20, I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Well, that is obedience. Uh, Jesus said, I'm sending you so they would turn from Satan to God. Paul says, therefore I declared that they should repent and turn to God. Same words. And that, then, if you compare those two verses, you see that's how you come out of darkness. That's how you come out of the domain of Satan. Not by reciting specific, you know, bondage-breaking formulas for renouncing the influence of Satan, but, but just by truly repenting of all your sins toward God and trusting in the person and work of Christ. Now compare verse 18 and 20. And the mission of Christ's light, then, it, it is, we see, when it is carried out, it's a proclamation of repentance, Now certainly this passage in Acts, as well as many others in this book, it shows the error of those who may say, you don't need to repent to be saved because salvation is of grace. Now people have made that error for a long time. Uh, Even in the days of the Reformation, I found the early reformer John Calvin commented on this verse and said, this place teacheth that these men do unskillfully pervert the gospel, which separate the grace of Christ from repentance. See, repentance is part of the salvation God gives by grace. He gives repentance. So in that way, the call to repent does not pervert the gospel of grace. Removing the call to repent does. And I'll tell you another reason. Now, I know it might confuse people. If they don't understand repentance along the lines of this careful distinction Paul made in this verse. They might think that calling people to repent, to be saved, messes up the gospel of grace. 
But look at this careful distinction. He distinguishes repentance from works in keeping with repentance. You see that? Or works appropriate for repentance or worthy of repentance. That's, that's very similar to what John the Baptist said, this language. He called for repentance, but also said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So in your own mind, and perhaps for others, you, you should distinguish repentance from the good works that flow from it. Just as the Reformers taught us to read the Bible rightly, to distinguish saving faith from the good works that flow from faith. The same distinction holds true with respect to repentance. When Acts said, you must repent to be saved, you must repent to have your sins blotted out. And in in today's passage, you must turn from darkness to God. Repentance. And that results in the reception of forgiveness. That doesn't mean you need to start doing good works or establish some track record of obedience in order to receive forgiveness and salvation because... Repentance is not, technically speaking, the works that come from it. I wonder if if any of you, maybe some of you young people, are held back from coming to Christ because of just this reason. You think, I need to repent, and you misunderstand and think, oh, I need to start obeying. And you feel like you can't come to Christ because you haven't established this track record of obedience. No, no, that would be the fruit of repentance, works in keeping with repentance. Repentance is just an inward thing. Calvin says repentance is an inward thing placed in the affection of the heart, just like faith is. And and yes, just like faith, because true repentance and saving faith are actually two sides of the same heart reality. So here's what repentance is. It is a change of heart. It's just having a true sight of one's sin and how evil it is. And so you, you mourn over that sin, how it offends God. And, and you hate that you did it. And so you, you turn from the sin in the sense of inwardly and earnestly purposing to endeavor after new obedience. That's repentance. It's real repentance before any practical obedience comes out of that change of heart. But of course, real repentance will issue forth in practical obedience. But, but we still have to not collapse this distinction between repentance and, and works worthy of it. It will be a stumbling block from people accepting the gospel, not understanding grace. But remember this also, we do need to be called to perform deeds, to perform deeds in keeping with repentance, right? Uh, You say you repent, Christian, praise God for that. You say you want to repent, I believe you, that the the Spirit's in you. Okay, perform deeds in keeping with it. Put some flesh and bones on that desire of repentance. Do, Do concrete deeds. Do something. Lots of things. Take deliberate action. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has repentance but does not have works? Can that repentance save him? Repentance by itself, if it does not issue forth in works, is is dead. Someone might say, you have repentance and I have works. No, show me your repentance by your works. I hope this distinction is clear. 
and helpful. In the next verse, Paul tells Agrippa, this is why the people accusing me in this trial hate me. Look at verse 21. This is the reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Okay, for what reason? Well, for what he just said in verse 20. That in obedience to the commission Jesus gave, he declared the message of salvation to Jews and to Gentiles. And listen to this. It's not that they hated him because he declared a way of salvation to the Gentiles. They hated him because he declared the same way of salvation to both Jew and Gentile, as if they were on equal footing before God, as if they had the exact same spiritual need, and as if they had the exact same spiritual blessings available to be gained by them. That was the real offense, that there was nothing distinguishing about them in the terms of the gospel of Jesus Christ, above those that they particularly despised. Now in verse 22, Paul needles King Agrippa along these same lines. He says not only is there no spiritual distinction between Jew and Gentile in light of sin in the gospel, there's also no spiritual distinction between the great and the small. Look at verse 22. To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. I remember last week how King Agrippa entered into this courtroom in such grand fashion, in a way that made clear he was not of small importance. Acts 25, 23 said, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. And they entered the hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Well, if Agrippa is going to be saved, he's going to need to humble himself to accept even you know, the lowliest, dirtiest, most dishonorable servant of his as his complete spiritual equal before Christ on the outside of the gospel, and if both trust in Christ on the inside of the gospel, to have to embrace him as his full brother in Christ, who will reign with Christ with him. Now, there are so many forms of self-righteousness. It can be so subtle. It's always so dangerous, and often it manifests itself in, in a kind of contempt toward another kind or type, or class of, of person. And, and you make smug, favorable self-comparisons with um, this other certain class, or type, or kind of person. And that kind of self-righteousness keeps people from the gospel because they bristle at the thought that there's one and the same salvation, one and the same need, one and the same blessings of available for all people. For Gentile and Jew and small and great and whatever other uh, categories you want to add. Now, verse 23 ends Paul's testimony before Agrippa. And, and, okay, the verse finishes the thought that began in verse 22. So, to get a little running start, Paul said, I'm saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, namely, 
that, verse 23, that the Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. That's the very heart of what Paul was to proclaim, death and resurrection of Jesus. But specifically, Paul's claim in this verse is that the prophet said all that would happen. And they did in many places predict the suffering and resurrection of the Messiah. Nowhere more wonderfully than Isaiah 52 and 53, the Messiah is called the servant of the Lord. We saw earlier in in the latter half of Isaiah. And Isaiah 53 describes his suffering on the cross 700 years later in astonishing detail. It makes clear the reason for that suffering. Isaiah said he would be pierced for our transgressions, that the Lord would lay on him our sin, and then the Lord would crush him in our place. And Isaiah described the result of that suffering, that many nations would be sprinkled clean, our guilt would be atoned for, we would have peace with God, sinners would be accounted righteous. But that passage, Isaiah 53 and 52, it also foretells the rising of the servant. On the other side of the suffering, it says, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, Paul said in verse 23, though, that there's something else the prophet said Christ would do. Verse 23 says the prophets also said he would proclaim light to the nations. So Jesus is not just the light that's proclaimed. He's also the proclaimer of the light. Now, where do the prophets say that? That's part of the mission of the Messiah. Again, the songs of the servant and the prophet Isaiah. The same who would suffer and rise. Isaiah 49, 6. The Lord says to the servant... It's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. It's too small for you to just save Israel. I will make you a light for the nations. Light. That my salvation may reach the end of the earth. And in Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, I read it earlier. God says to his chosen servant, I give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, who, those who sit in darkness. Now, I hope that some of you thought when you heard that prophecy of Christ, wow, that sure sounds a lot like the mission that Jesus gave Paul on the road to Damascus. It does. And on purpose. Christ gave Paul a commission fashioned based on the words of that prophecy about his own ministry because the mission of Christ's light that he was giving, Christ was giving to Paul, that was a mission by which Jesus himself would continue his own ministry of proclamation through Paul, the ministry of proclamation that the prophets foretold the Messiah himself would have. Uh, you know, the other prophecy I just read from Isaiah uh, 49, 6, about the servant being the light for the nations, that's significant. In Acts 13, 
47, Paul quotes that prophecy about Christ, and he says that that has become Christ's command to him. Isaiah, uh, Acts 13, 47, the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. What? That, that Isaiah 49 prophecy about Christ's ministry is also Christ's command to Paul about the ministry Christ was giving him? Yes, in the same way that the Isaiah 42 prophecy about Christ's ministry became the basis for the commission Christ gave to Paul in chapter 26, 18. So again, what is happening is Christ's commission to Paul is, is going to be the continuation of Christ's own saving mission to open blind eyes, to bring prisoners out of darkness. He's going to continue uh, his work that the prophets predicted on the earth through this man he appointed as his witness. Now, do you remember the very first sermon we heard in the book of Acts a year and a half ago? Good for you if you do. Now, what was the point of that? That Christ left earth to ascend to heaven, to send down his spirit, not so that his people would be empowered to work in his absence instead of him, but so that he could work through them, present with them. Christ ascended and sent his spirit so he could continue his ministry of proclamation and salvation on the earth, present with his people by the spirit that every Christian receives. And actually, in the book of Isaiah, do you know what it says? The servant of the Lord who accomplishes this ministry of salvation and proclamation, he is the one that the spirit rests upon. And so, when that servant finished his work, with the Spirit resting on him and ascended to heaven, he sent down the very same Spirit that rested on him to rest on his people so that he, through them, could continue his work of witness and proclamation on the earth. So don't get the wrong idea about Paul's ministry, about your call as a witness for Christ. You're not just working for Christ, carrying out his mission for him. No, he's working through you, accomplishing his mission of light for himself. What a privilege. It is marvelous when you live as a witness for Christ. There is a sense in which the, the prophets, the prophecies of the prophets are being fulfilled through your evangelism because through you, Christ is doing the work that the prophet Isaiah foretold. Proclaiming light to all peoples. When you witness for Christ, by the power of His Spirit in you, you're doing what the prophet said Christ would do. Because Christ is working through you. Isn't that incredible? And that's why when someone hears and believes the gospel today, that they meet Christ just as truly as Paul did on the Damascus Road. Because Christ is there present in that moment. And his living words are going out to the hearer. And it is his present power that is opening the eyes of the heart. Right? As if he was right there. Because by his spirit, working through his people and his word, 
He is. The mission of Christ's light did not end when he left the earth. He sent the Spirit to his people, and it continues. The mission of Christ's light advanced in an amazing way in the Reformation. It is worth celebrating each year because it was Christ himself who did it, who, who spread the gospel, the, the, the light of the true gospel like that. Continuing the saving mission the prophet said that he would have on the earth, and it continues through us today and all his people, Christ is not done opening the eyes of the blind and leading prisoners out of the dungeon of darkness. Uh, but friends, more, more important uh, than thinking about how Christ might work through you to open eyes and bring them to light, you need to listen for yourself to the words of Christ, to the living Christ, proclaim light for your own soul's sake through his word. And I implore you, turn to his light. He will receive you. You'll find forgiveness. Father, thank you for uh, this time we've had over your word. And we thank you for uh, the mission of Christ's light that you graciously sent to us in particular. I thank you for this wonderful salvation in him. Thank you for the privilege of being appointed by him as his witness. Help us to be faithful to that end and cause us to be more motivated to be faithful witnesses by understanding more deeply these realities of what's really happening when we do uh, the long foretold ministry of Christ continuing. God, we don't deserve any of these blessings, but you give them to us freely, and we know that, that this is all for your greater glory. And so we say glory to you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.